0: be reading Psalm 66 before we turn to 1 Peter. So I invite you to stand with me, and we will read uh, Psalm 66, and then we will read 1 Peter. Psalm 66. Shout for joy to God, all the earth, sing the glory of his name, sing to him glorious praise. Say to God, How awesome are your deeds! So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sing praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. Who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip? For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid us in a crushing burden on your backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you that, my, that which my lips uttered, and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals. With the smoke of the sacrifice of rams, I will make an offering of bulls and goats Come in here, all you who fear God, and I will tell what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth and high praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. Now turning to 1 Peter. The text for our message tonight is uh, chapter 1, verses 6 to 9. I'm I'm just going to start reading in verse 3 for the sake of context. So 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let us pray once more. Our great God and our loving Father, we we come to you again, O Lord, and we pray that you would open the eyes of our heart that we may behold wonderful things from your word through our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would bless him who speaks, for he is weak, and bless those who hear, for they are weak. Lord, many among us are are afflicted, and we pray, O Lord, that you would comfort the afflicted, and that you would give grace to all here this evening. We pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. In George Orwell's book, 1984, The Totalitarian Government of Oceania, one tactic they have to implement English socialism is that they change the English language to serve its purposes. Uh, They create a language called Newspeak. And so the novel 1984 begins with the main character, Winston, and he's looking out a window. And he's kind of looking through these tall buildings, and he sees a a giant pyramid that's uh, 300 meters uh, tall. And it's in front of a building called the Ministry of Truth. And engraved on this pyramid, it says, War is peace. Freedom is slavery. Ignorance is strength. It's obvious to the reader, it ought to be obvious to the reader, that these are blatant lies. But the party, the party, the government in, in 1984, has spun the truth in, in such a way that the common man believes these, these blatant lies, he believes these party slogans as fact. And the party in this book, these, this totalitarian government, um, they're filled with a bunch of, of paradoxes They have um, the Ministry of Peace, and their job is that they oversee war. Uh, The Ministry of Love, what do you think they do? They uh, carry out the torture of political prisoners. Um, The Ministry of of Truth, well, they're in charge of uh, changing the content in history books to match up with the party's uh, beliefs. And if if you're a particularly astute reader or you took AP English, in high school, you may you may remember uh, the brand of alcohol that the main character Winston drinks. He drinks victory gin, and he smokes a victory cigarette. It's very ar- ironic, right? And to all of us, real red-blooded Americans, we're rightfully appalled by this description of, of this overreaching government in 1984. They've clearly named lies as truth and oppression as victory. Life in Oceania is a paradox. We know that these statements are self-contradictory. We know that war is not peace. We know that freedom is not slavery. And we know that ignorance is not strength. These paradoxes are full throughout the book. And we come to our text tonight in 1 Peter and there's some truths in 1 Peter that are a little a little tense, a little hard to hold, hard, hard to juggle. Some of the truths in 1 Peter at, at first blush, they seem a bit paradoxical. And there's a few of these that we've already seen in our few messages on 1 Peter. First, if, if we looked at verses 1 and 2, Peter's writing to those people who are both elect and exiles. They're chosen by God, yet they're outside of the promised land. And then if we looked at verses 3 to 5, we see that we have a living hope. We have an inheritance already right now, but it's also being kept for us later down the road in in heaven. There's a little bit of a tension here. And additionally, we get to our text today and we see two more of these truths that They're not paradoxes, but they throw us for a loop. There's some some tension here. Um, First, we see that Peter calls us to rejoice in our trials. And secondly, he calls us to believe in what we cannot see. Now, to the believer, um, these two truths joy and suffering, faith in, in God. These are the ABCs of the Christian language, right? These are the do-re-mi's of the Christian language. But to those who don't know Christ, these truths sound like newspeak. These truths sound like paradoxes. When those who are outside the Christian faith hear us speak of joy amid suffering or believing in what, they can't, and what we cannot see, they hear newspeak. They hear a paradox or they hear Propaganda. And so many of us can we're maybe hopefully starting to feel some of the tension that this text is bringing out. You may be feeling that tension right now, and I, I know that if um, I, w- I were sitting in your seat, I might be just a little hesitant to hear what the seminary student has to say about suffering. And to be quite honest, I'm a little hesitant about how I can speak of having joy amidst suffering, Many of you, not many of you, some of you have, have lived a lot longer than, than I have, right? Some of you have experienced hardship way, way worse than, than I have. And, and so I, I do worry and I hesitate. How can I speak to having joy amidst suffering? And so I do want to be careful this evening, not to be cavalier, not to be crass, not to be cliche or condescending, but I do want to point us to the scriptures And to our great Savior. And so this brings us to our first point this evening. There's only there's only two points tonight, and the first point is the joy of faith. Pardon me, the joy of trials. The the joy of trials. So if we look in, in verse six, there's a potential paradox here. Peter begins our passage tonight with a statement that seems contradictory, paradoxical. It seems like newspeak. He says, In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. If we look at this text and when Peter says, in this you rejoice, what is the this that that he is talking about? Why do we have hope to rejoice in in trials? And the answer to that question is found just a, a verse or two above. If we look back up, the reason we have to rejoice is that we have been born again through the resurrection, and we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And if remember back just two weeks ago, our, our last message on 1 Peter, we, we talked about Peter's audience being not just spiritual exiles, but physical exiles as well. And they have lost land, money, social standing, and, and their inheritance for the sake of, of the gospel. And so While all that, all that suffering is here and in the background, and it may give these sojourners reason enough to to despair, to lick their wounds, Peter encouraged us that we can rejoice because we have an inheritance, again, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's being kept in heaven for us. And while the enemies of the Christian might destroy all they have in this world, there is a reward in heaven that no force no person, no failed promise could keep from them. The inheritance that we are promised ought to give us hope, even in our darkest hour. Peter moves us, moves us on here from our hope in our darkest hour to a reminder that we will indeed have dark hours. and Indeed, many of us have had those dark hours, and some of us, unfortunately, right now are in that dark hour. Perhaps the darkest hour we've ever experienced. Again, I, I, I want to be careful here. I, I don't want to be cavalier. One of my biggest pet peeves in life is, is trite advice. I, I absolutely hate cliche, motivational posters, or when someone takes a verse out of context to say, don't worry about that, don't have anxiety, uh, you, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't worry. And I don't want to give trite advice. Let me be um, a little silly for, for just a second. If we think of the, the, the stereotypical or proverbial country song where a, a man's wife leaves him, he loses his job, his truck breaks down, his dog runs away, all these bad things happen to this man. What, what would we tell that man? What would be our advice in his darkest hour? Would we tell him that when the going gets tough, the tough gets going? Or will we tell him it all works out? Would we quote to him Jeremiah 29, 11, as good of a verse as that may be? Would we just give these one one line uh, pieces of advice? I, I want to be careful not to do that this evening. And for those of us who are in that dark hour, I, I don't want to tell you, I don't want to tell you to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Or that the reason we fall uh, is to learn to pick ourselves up again. I don't want to give that sort of trite advice uh, this evening. And this is not the advice that Peter gives. It's not the encouragement he offers. He says that we rejoice though we face, we, we face trials. And he's not minimizing pain here. He, he's not denying the ra- reality of our pain and suffering. He's saying we can rejoice because we know that these sufferings are temporary. And if we look back to verses 3 and 5, we know that we have an inheritance that is sure and eternal. And so though our life may be short or troubled, we will inherit eternal life, as Peter's promise. Though we may be impoverished, one day we will inherit the earth. Though others have not kept their promises, we will inherit the promises of God. And though some have treated us with evil, we will inherit blessing. If Peter were to stop here at at verse 6, if he were to end his discussion on suffering here, if this is all the Bible had to speak about suffering is what we find in verse 6, it would likely leave us wanting for a little bit more. If the only theology of Christian suffering came in verse 6, we may be tempted to think you're going to suffer, it's going to be hard, but heaven's going to be great. So just grin and bear it. But thankfully, Peter doesn't end his, his words uh, on suffering here. He doesn't end the discussion there, but he goes on in verse 7. He says that we are facing trials so that, for the purpose that, in order that, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ." And this verse, verse 7, Peter is teaching us, I think, two important lessons about suffering. And first, Peter wants to make it clear that the testing of our faith is not a result of the failure of our faith. We're not experiencing these trials because we have inadequate faith. But, but secondly, we experience trials because of the value of our faith. This is why Peter points us to the analogy of of gold. He says, our faith is like gold that is tested by fire. Some of us may know, some of us may not know that to make gold pure, it has to be refined in the fire. And you have to to heat it up until it melts down into, into a liquid. And that way you can separate the dross or the impurities from the pure gold. The way you make gold more pure, more valuable, is melting it. And that's what Peter compares our, our faith. How does God give us greater degrees of patience? How does God give us greater degrees of humility or wisdom or godliness? Is he like Peter Pan with Tinkerbell? Does he shake some, some fairy dust on us and we, we suddenly become more wise and, and more holy? No, he, he refines us like gold in the fire. Just as gold ought, ought to be removed of its impurities, because it's so precious, it's so valuable, Peter's saying even more so, our faith ought to be fully proved. It ought to be removed of all impurities because of its great value. And this is why not only Peter, but all of the New Testament writers can talk about Christians having joy amid suffering. Suffering, though, is obviously undoubtedly a difficult part of life, both for the believer and the unbeliever. Everybody has to deal with suffering in this life. We all meet trials of various kinds. But the reason that the believer has to count it all joy, as James says, or the reason that the believer can rejoice that we have been grieved with various trials, like Peter says here, is that we know that suffering produces steadfastness. The believer knows that she's not being thrown into the furnace for the sake of suffering, but that her dross may be consumed and her gold would be refined. It, it's, a strange, it's a strange thing. It's, 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 it's hard to, to juggle. It's, there's a lot of tension here. How do we say rejoice though you are experienced trials? It, it's, it's a difficult thing. But the Christian knows and trusts that God does not discipline out of anger, God disciplines his children because he loves us. When, when we were children, any one of us, we didn't understand the reasons we were being disciplined. We didn't understand everything our parents were doing. And boys and girls, let me key you in on a little secret here that you're not told to clean your room when your parents have companies over uh, because there's a high chance the company's going to go and look at your room. You're not told to do chores merely for the sake of a clean house. You're not told to make your bed every day because someone other than you will, will see it. But your parents have, have reason for this. And, and so does God. He has reasons that he, he disciplines us that we may not see right away. But God, does, again, does not discipline us out of anger, we do not go through trials because God is angry at us, but we go through trials that our gold might be refined. And so let me ask you, imagine for just a moment, how, if you had gotten everything you've ever wanted in life, if you had more money than you, could re-spend, than you could spend, if you had no restraints on your time or resources, would you love God more or would you love God less? Are you ever happy that God did, in fact, not answer a prayer request? Maybe some of us can think of those prayer requests that we're glad God did not answer. We, we, we can see, if we've walked with the Lord for a long time, that there are sometimes we're incredibly happy that God didn't grant us every wish that we ever prayed, prayed for. But it is through these various trials that, that God cures us of our self-dependence and our covetous hearts, The cross is a medicine to us. Suffering and discipline is a medicine to our souls. It's an unloving father who never disciplines his children. Peter shows us here in the text that our suffering is not a sign of God's wrath towards us, but it is God's grace to us for our sanctification. It is through suffering that God is making our faith even more precious than gold, so that it may be found to result, he says, in praise, glory, and honor at Christ's return. And so trials are necessary in the Christian life if we want to be found pure when Christ returns. We know that this is not the only reason that trials are necessary. Jesus tells us that all trials, suffering, and self-denial, they're just a part of the Christian life. He says to us that if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What Jesus is telling us, what Peter is telling us in this passage is that the mark of a Christian is not health, wealth, and prosperity, The mark of a Christian is picking up your cross and following your great Savior. And it is this great Savior that that Peter points us to in in verse 8. And that brings us to our second point, the joy of faith. This great Savior Peter speaks about, he says in verse 8, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Here again Peter brings us to another statement, another truth that might seem paradoxical. It might seem um like newspeak the first time we hear it. We love what we've not seen and what we don't now see brings us inexpressible joy. How does how does that make sense? And when when we're going through this text Peter is just talking about joy and suffering and then he talks about Jesus us not having seen Jesus, and it may seem like a pivot. Like, what what is Peter doing here? Did he just change topics? Is this a whole a whole other sermon? He, he's not changing topics. He, he's telling us that though we have many reasons to rejoice in suffering, the the first reason Peter gives is pointing back to the passage, pointing back to the previous passage. Our inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Peter is reminding us here by by pointing to our Lord that we cannot fully see our inheritance. In the same way, we can't fully see our Lord. We can't fully see the trials that are refining us, and we cannot fully see God. This is the nature of faith, right? The inheritance that we have, it's still waiting for us in heaven. We believe in God now, but we don't see him. And I think there are two things that Peter wants us to see about faith in in this verse. And that uh, first, faith is not by sight. Peter is reminding the sojourners here, and he's reminding us that we we do not see Christ, but we love him. And even though we do not see him, we believe in him and we have great joy. And he reminds us that if we believe in him whom we have not seen, if we believe in him who created the universe by the word of his power, if we believe in him who defeated death, then can't we also believe that he is not chastising us, That but he is, he is refining us? Can't we also believe that he is not disciplining us in his wrath, but he's consuming our dross and refining our gold? And secondly, the thing that Peter wants us to, to see about faith is that faith Is not merely an intellectual assent. It's not a mere intellectual exercise. Calvin says faith is not a cold notion, but faith kindles our hearts to love Christ. Faith does not lay hold of the bare name of Christ, but regards what he is to us and what blessings he brings. And so Peter is saying that we can rejoice with joy because we have faith. Our, our faith gives us reason to rejoice. We, we, have, we have faith, not that it'll all work out, right? Going back to that cliche advice, that's not what our faith is in. We, we, our faith is not in the idea um, that we'll have strength in ourselves to face our trials. Um, our, our faith is, is not in any wisdom or power we have, but we can rejoice because we have Christ as the object of our faith. And we place our faith in not his mere existence, right? This is what Calvin is saying. It's not just about intellectual assent. We're not placing our faith merely in the fact that he exists, not merely in him being a good and moral teacher, but we place our faith in him knowing that he lived a perfect life and that he would credit us with his righteousness, knowing that he died to take God's wrath, which rightfully belonged to us. And we place our faith in him because he resurrected from the dead, and is ruling and reigning this day. We place our faith in our great Savior, knowing that through him we will obtain our inheritance and our salvation, which is the outcome of our of our faith. And this is where Peter takes us lastly in, in verse nine. He says, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls, in times of, of suffering and in times of, of prosperity, where do we look? We ought to look to that final day when we finally obtain our inheritance and we ought always to look to our great savior. We look to our heavenly inheritance so that it would make the trials of this life seem minuscule. When we look at how great and big our God is, the things of this world go strangely dim. We look to our great inheritance and our great God so we are not bogged down and, and dazzled. By the things of this world. And while the promise of our inheritance, what we look forward to, does give us great hope, that's true. We want to hang on to that great hope. Ultimately, the object of our faith is our Lord Jesus Christ. Because we have Christ, we have everything, even though we suffer. We lack nothing when we are in Christ Jesus. And this is why the author of Hebrews can speak of Moses and say that Moses considered the the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses knew that the reproach of Christ, that the trials he experienced for knowing God, the trials he experienced um, for, for forsaking everything, that he would follow the Lord, he knew that those trials were better than the riches of Egypt. He knew that those trials were better than being born in Buckingham Palace. He knew that the reproaches of Christ are better than winning the lottery. Moses believed that the reproaches of Christ was better than having perfect health or perfect kids or or a perfect marriage. So it's a hard hard thing to wrap Our head around. And I I could imagine some of us asking um, or thinking that you're right. This does sound paradoxical. This does sound like newspeak. How could Christ's discipline to us be better than all the money in the world? This is not a paradox, and this is not newspeak. The one who created the world by the word of his power does not speak in contradictions, he does not speak in propaganda, paradox, or in newspeak. Where the world has said war is peace, he has come and brought peace between God and man to whoever would believe in him. And he brought that peace not through war, but he brought that peace through his own suffering. And he invites us all to know him, to trust him and to follow him. He calls us not to a life of ease, not to a life of prosperity or wealth, but he calls us to pick up our cross, to deny ourselves and follow him. Let us pray. Our great God and, and our loving Father, we thank you for your many good gifts to us. We thank you, oh Lord, for the truth of Scripture. Lord, that we have a reason to hope in the midst of suffering. Lord, suffering is a part of this life, whether we are a believer or an unbeliever. But Lord, one of the joys of being a Christian is that we do not suffer for the sake of suffering. We don't suffer for evil's sake, but we suffer that our faith would would be refined. And Lord, we we look to our great inheritance. We look to that day where you will wipe every tear from our eye, where broken relationships will be healed. There will be no more pain and suffering. And we hope in that day and long for that day. But we look ultimately and and place our our faith primarily in our Lord Jesus Christ, who, who loved us, who lived a perfect life for us, who died for us and was resurrected again, that we may live again. Lord, we know that there are many among us who are afflicted, and we pray that you would bring comfort to the afflicted. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We pray that you would be with us this evening and as we go out this week. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.